Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the program Dr. Brendan Mulvaney. He is the director of the U.S. Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute at Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base uh, in sunny Mississippi. He is a retired Marine Corps Cobra gunship pilot. Uh, Dr. Mulvaney is fluent in Chinese, was an Olmsted scholar who earned his doctorate in international relations at Fudan University in Shanghai. He has served also as the first director of the Marine Corps Commandant's Red Team to rigorously and objectively analyze plans and recommend changes to improve senior decision making. Brendan, it is an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. Uh, I am uh, as well. And I should just point out to our uh, audience that our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's great uh, national security strategists, Andy Marshall, uh, the late former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, as I mentioned, not only uh, sponsors this strategy series, but our strategy coverage more broadly. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and trade show going on this week uh, out at uh, National Harbor outside the nation's capital. Uh, Brendan, we talk a lot about China uh, as a threat, as well as the capabilities that they've been developing on a rather methodical basis over many decades, like long-range uh, precision strike, maneuvering area, area denial, hypersonic weapons, right, all manner of space and, and cyber weaponry. What are the individual or collective suites of capabilities that China is developing that you think are most problematic from a military standpoint, before we get to the political and the cultural and, and the like? Sure. Well, I think uh, as China has continued their rapid pace of military modernization, uh, they've done so uh, with a single track mind, and that is to um, pursue their strategy that they call counter-intervention. Uh, and that's focused on not necessarily how to defeat the United States piecemeal, but how to keep the United States and our allies and partners out of the region. Uh, and so when we look at the capabilities, certainly they have, you know, new fighter jets, um, you know, that are now stealthy. They are building a space architecture. They have uh, the largest suite, uh, both largest and broadest suite of rockets and missiles uh, of anyone, including the United States or Russia, for that matter. Uh, and, but all of this is with the intention of keeping the United States out. So it's really those kind of technologies that we should be paying attention to. The example I use is they know that their J-20, their newest uh, uh, fighter jet, is not as good as the F-35, but they have developed air-to-air -air missiles that keep uh, not only the air, the uh, the F-35, but also the air-to-air -air refueling platforms that allow those right. F-35s to get in, uh, keep them out of the region. And so that's really one of the things that, that China's been focused on. Um, I, I love the pragmatism uh, of that, right? Wait a minute, I don't have to sink the fleet. I just need to sink all the oilers, right? It's like, wow, that's pretty pragmatic. Um, and, and give the audience a sense of the range, right? Because it is not the stealthiest airplane, but it's got carries a lot of gas, goes really far. It's aimed at taking out the tankers, uh, the AEW, right? The AWACS, the command planes and, and the like. What is the range of the air-to-air -air missiles they're using? Because I, you know, still find it fascinating that the United States, uh, you know, as the threats have actually been going up and the need for range has been going up, the range of our weapons has actually been decreasing bizarrely, right? I mean, we went from having a Phoenix missile to an AMRAAM being the best we have, and that's like a 45, 50 mile uh, weapon. The Phoenix on a good day was around 80 miles. What are the Chinese shooting and what are the ranges that we need to sort of bear in mind that the J-20 can operate at? Yeah, so it, it would, uh, their missiles today, not talking about necessarily what they'll have in the future, uh, but their missiles, they would outstick either of those by, uh, you know, 50 to at least 50%, if not more. Uh, of course, the U.S. is now well aware of this and working on longer range air to air missiles. Uh, but the point is that we're working on them and they have these things uh, in inventory flying around on jets today. The other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, for the foreseeable future, China uh, and its aerospace forces are planning on playing a home game uh, 
So they are planning on fighting a fight, should it come to that, God forbid, uh, underneath the world's densest and most integrated uh, air defense system, right, along the eastern seaboard of China. Uh, so not only are our aircraft uh, worried about uh, being outsticked by the uh, the air-to-air -air missiles, but even should we find a way to avoid those, uh, you know, either through decoys or through maneuvering or whatever, we've still got to penetrate into this IAD system uh, that their aircraft are, are, you know, going to be operating under. And that goes for their tankers as well as their fighters and their EW, right. uh, you know, their special mission aircraft. All of those uh, are planning, like I said, to fight that home game. Taiwan is only 100 nautical miles off the coast of China. It is really far from Guam and Hawaii and Alaska, uh, and even really bases in Japan, uh, much less anything further afield. So that's that's the context. We we have to make sure we understand how the Chinese are solving Chinese problems with Chinese solutions, not necessarily how we would do it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting uh, that the geography is important to remember, and I love uh, Admiral Swift's Scott Swift's uh, description of you know just just imagine. If China were trying to defend Catalina Island from the United States, that's like the magnitude uh, of of the challenge uh, that we're uh, talking about. Um, when you mentioned uh, the integrated air and missile uh, defenses, we as Americans get very cocky, um, right? Uh, the Kinjal uh, was, you know, this this boogeyman weapon, and we're using. Um, uh, the Patriot to defeat it, uh, you know, or at least the Ukrainians are. Uh, and the Ukrainians are able to operate in, you know, right, the dense Russian air defense bubble with their jamming and everything else. Well, I mean, the Ukrainians are able to send, you know, homemade long range drones and strike Moscow with them in this, right, uh, supposed to be this formidable Russian air and missile defenses. What do we need to know about how the Chinese are doing this? Because we have a tendency of looking at it and saying, oh, the Russians are a clown show and the Chinese may also similarly be clownish, right? There's no such thing, Vago, as a real A2AD, right? That doesn't exist. We can operate uh, in these in these bubbles and create our own opportunities. From your standpoint, how good is the Chinese uh, IADs uh, where it matters? Yeah, so it, it, is not, it is not the Russians and it is very robust. The other thing to keep in mind is uh, we are not talking from the Chinese perspective, at least. They don't see Taiwan as a sovereign nation. There are also no other land borders. So the Ukraine has the uh, the advantage of having uh, land borders all around it, uh, as well as one with Russia. Uh, and so that complicates Russian strategy because not all those land borders are necessarily supporting them. Uh, and so uh, they can't go uh, whole hog against Ukraine because of some of those things. Uh, Taiwan is literally an island. It is off the coast of China. Um, it is a decent way away from Okinawa and military bases there. Uh, and then, like I said, really far from everybody else. So they don't have the luxury of being able to call in uh, people that could potentially support them from other you know, land bases. Uh, so you'd have to get the U.S. Navy or you know, an ally or a partner to sail Navy fleets into and under the coverage of Chinese ballistic missile ranges uh, in order to go ahead and support them. So unfortunately for the, the people living on Taiwan, they don't have some of the advantages that the Ukraine has vis-a-vis -vis the Russians. The other thing I will say is that uh, obviously, the, the you know the Chinese haven't fought a, a a major battle since the early '80s, and not really a war since the late '70s or early '80s, depending on how you calculate it. Uh, so it's it's unclear uh, how they would perform uh, against a contestant in a, in a contested environment against a living, breathing, thinking enemy. Uh, but certainly, their exercises and training point to they are preparing to fight a real world battle as best they can, uh, and they're doing it more aggressively than the Russians ever did. Uh, I think the Russians were lulled into a false sense of security because, you know, they took Crimea, they took Transnistria, uh, they were able to do all these things without much, um, uh, much resistance. Uh, and so they kind of got lulled into the, oh, surely we'll take Ukraine without it. Uh, China is under no false sense of security. They know what's coming and they are preparing for it. Are they, you know, General uh, Hooper, uh, retired U.S. Army three-star and one of the nation's great China mines in uniform, uh, is is fond of saying that they've read every book on fishing, but they've never been fishing, uh, which I think is a, a great expression. And we hope General Hooper joins us uh, for one of these uh, series as well. Um, how are they, Brendan, culturally to be able to handle this? Because it is still a very top-down military, right? Because if you empower, that's problematic in an authoritarian system. That's Russia's big problem, uh, right? 
ultimately from their exercises or their behavior, are we sort of seeing the kind of mission command, the flexibility, the initiative that characterizes successful militaries? They could have all the best weapons in the world, but if they're not really trained to properly use it culturally, uh, nor to be able to take advantage, right? That's problematic. I mean, there's only one of their guys at senior leadership who has experience in fighting Vietnam. Yeah, so this is one of the things that uh, I really started under late Pooch and Tao, which Xi Jinping has been very focused on, is, is ensuring that the the type of training and exercises they're doing are, you know, getting uh, as close to the real world as possible. Uh, and so, yeah, it is it is really hard to say. You know, they have, uh, General Hooper makes a great point. Uh, they absolutely are voracious consumers of information. Um, you know, my boss is also the head of the uh, the Air Force Lessons Learned Center. We do a lot of lessons learned because we want to get better. And we talk to our allies and partners and do after action reports. We put all that stuff out in English uh, and in mostly unsecured ways. The Chinese gobble all that up to try to understand how to get better. In fact, their major reorganization was based on what we've been telling the world the best way to fight a, a military is. And so they are they are doing that. How do they do in training and exercises? Probably about as good as you could do uh, without going up and having people actually shoot you. Uh, so it's uh, two sides of the same coin. It's not any substitute for fighting a real war. There is no way to tell exactly how ready they're going to be. They talk about some of their deficiencies. The flip side of that is we should not, the Americans and our allies and partners should not lull ourselves into a sense of false security because they haven't fought since 79 uh, or the early 80s. So, you know, my, my stock answer is when was the last time the U.S. Navy sank a ship in anger? Uh, and the answer right. is, you know, it was a small craft in the 80s. Uh, but I don't think there's anyone on the face of the earth that doubts that the U.S. Navy could do it because we practice an exercise uh, all the time. Uh, so it is, uh, unfortunately, it's a guessing game at this point, both on the Chinese side and the American side. I think uh, that we look at what they're doing. And as you mentioned, it is a change in culture and mindset. The Air Force uh, is really the PLA Air Force is really leading um, the, the, the change uh, in this respect by changing from doing rope memorization of flight plans to actual something similar to what we would call free air combat. They've come a long, long way in just the last 10 to 15 years uh, and continue to do so and train like they see us fighting. So they will train in a complex electromagnetic environment uh, by turning on all sorts of jammers, by pretending uh, that they don't have communications because they, they know that's how we're going to fight. So they've done a pretty good job. It's the rest of the PLA, to your point, you are absolutely correct. It's still top down. It's still very, uh, very uh, command centric. Um, and it's going to take a while uh, to change the culture of the PLA to get something that will be uh, more flexible. The question is, uh, what is the trade-off for them? How much flexibility do you need if you're playing a home game where you have resistant communications and, you know, secondary and tertiary and, you know, backup communications everywhere? How much do you really need to practice that that small unit leadership? Uh, and it's just a trade-off that they're thinking about uh, and moving toward. They're, you know, they had a huge reorganization uh, in the 2015-2016 timeframe specifically to try to get at hey, we're going to become a joint military that fights jointly, which right. is different than anything the PLA had ever done. Um, I, I want to ask you um, sort of a, a sort of a cultural question. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that the nations that often accuse its adversaries of being imperialists are actually the imperialists at heart. Um, and the two nations that are, I would argue, among the world's most imperialist powers is Russia, and it's demonstrating that. Uh, right. Uh, it, all of this is mine um, and Ukraine is historically mine. And if I can't have it, I'm going to destroy it as a as an entity. Um, right. Even even right down to, uh, you know, kidnapping its future, kidnapping its children from a Chinese standpoint. We're you know, it views itself as a 5300 year. You know, we were the oldest continuous, uh, you know, society. Uh, and, you know, we are richer than anybody else in culture. And oh, by the way, all of it was ours, right? They remind Japan that you used to belong to us. They go to Korea and they tell, well, I mean, the Koreas used to be Chinese uh, as well. And, you know, make the case that the South China Sea is all mine. And 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 so is the East China Sea, uh, which doesn't sit well with every everybody else. What do we need to remember about frankly, the imperialist Chinese psyche 
that is very powerful in this and how that thinking shapes its strategy and is likely to shape its future behavior. Yeah, so that's absolutely the the story that the Communist Party continues to tell throughout the education system. Uh, and so ever since 1949, when they took control, uh, they've been, you know, uh, instilling this uh, at primary education all the way up through graduate education. You literally take classes on Chinese history, Chinese culture, uh, and uh, and this view, uh, but it's all based on the Communist Party's view. I literally had to take communism uh, as a part of my doctoral program in graduate school because they were so so concerned with making sure that everyone literally had the party line. So that mm. that frames the uh, their mindset. Um, and they will talk about 5,000 years of Chinese history. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish people might have a, a little bit of a say about who's got the older culture. But we have to remind ourselves there were many, many dynasties throughout there. Uh, but what right. the and the Chinese will underplay that, but they will but they absolutely will emphasize uh, what they call the century of humiliation. Uh, and this is the time from, uh, you know, the, the time of the, about the opium wars where they started with Britain uh, and then there were some unequal treaties. Uh, that allowed, uh, you know, the Americans and the French uh, and the Japanese, uh, they ceded uh, Taiwan for, uh, you know, a period of time at the Treaty of Shimonoseki to the Japanese. Um, all of these things are the, what they call the 100 years, the century of humiliation. And that is absolutely front and center uh, in in the Chinese psyche. Uh, I heard I heard a good quip the other day that uh, Tiananmen seems like so long ago and it, maybe it didn't even happen, but the century of humiliation happened yesterday. And that's really what the, the Communist Party wants you to believe. But because of all that, the Chinese people have a mindset uh, that is exacerbated once you join the PLA, uh, that you know the surrounding outside entities are there to get you, are there to constrain you, and they're to prevent the Chinese people from taking what they see or what the party tells them as you know, their, right, their, quote, rightful place on the center of the world stage. And those are Xi Jinping's words. Uh, and that's where he wants China to get back to. Um, you know, we can we can talk about you know how much Zhongguo uh, literally means the Middle Kingdom, the Center Kingdom, uh, but that is absolutely what Xi Jinping wants to portray um, to the Chinese people and then into the PLA. Do um, do you subscribe to the Hal Brands Michael Beckley um, philosophy that? Right, because the you know as as you noted, the party has been nationalizing the people for some time. They've stepped up those efforts certainly under Xi. Um, you know, open media has been closed. Right, you're getting most of your information from uh, Chinese state sources at this point. Right, dissent has sort of been crushed, uh, unfortunately, uh, and now the country is facing a whole series of very very serious economic woes. Um, do you subscribe to this notion that they're getting more dangerous as they get weaker and that, you know, they may decide to act a lot sooner than we think we will and also act irrationally um, because, right, authoritarians always like an external threat. It distracts your populace, your unhappy populace. Yeah. So I I, uh, I understand the, the logic of uh, that they, you know, that they put out in their book. Uh, and there's some definitely some good points to that. Uh, the flip side of that, it was interesting. I had dinner with the, uh, the the Chinese defense attache here in Washington, and he said, so let me get this straight. Um, China is a rising power, and it's rising so rapidly that we are a threat to the United States, and we're going to become dangerous. Or China is a peaking power, and we're going to peak, and therefore we present uh, a threat to the United States and its allies and partners because we're going to peak, uh, and we have to do something then. Or uh, now China's economy and you know population is in a decline, which makes us likely to lash out uh, for the reasons you just said, and therefore we're a threat to the United States. Uh, and his point was that you know you, you could paint it no uh, in any way, no matter what China was doing, you could paint them as a threat. Um, I don't necessarily think uh, that they're a peaking, uh, and more importantly, I don't think they think they are peaking. I think that's really the thing that we need to keep in mind. They have weathered uh, economic downturns before. They weathered, uh, you know, the uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. They have weathered a lot more um, uh, things than most Americans could even uh, imagine. 
and so I don't think the Communist Party thinks that they are on the downturn. They think that the United States and our allies and partners as a as a percentage, as a share of world uh, influence, and that's economy, diplomatic and military is on the, the decline, that the rest of the world is on the rise relatively um, and that they are in good shape for the coming future. So uh, I don't know that the Chinese even think that they're a, a, a power that uh, that would need to worry about this. But even if they are, I don't think that makes them any more or less likely to lash out. All of that being said, I think the Chinese uh, absolutely have a vision of the future, um, and there's not much that we are going to dis do to dissuade them uh, should the time come where they feel like they are able to accomplish that. Uh, and so it becomes necessary well ahead of time to make that vision, uh, especially uh, if it is a hostile you know, invasion and occupation of, of Taiwan. Uh, we have to make that so painful now uh, that they feel that it's it's never worth it, because I don't think uh, we are going to dissuade them one way or the other based on these theories about whether they're peaking or not. Does, is there a window of danger, right? I mean, they some of their leading academics or well-plugged-in ones have said uh, that, uh, you know, the unification or reunification with Taiwan has to happen uh, by 2027, the centenary uh, of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Does, is that something that's is that a ticking clock do we need to take that seriously right i mean there's a lot of discussion about whether there's a ticking clock is there a ticking clock is there a danger zone uh, not in my mind not in the not in that way um so the hundred years of the red army right pla um, excuse me pla i apologize i said ccp yeah. oh that's fine yeah the, the ccp just had theirs uh and so the pla is coming up uh, it is a milestone. It's a marker. Xi Jinping has said very clearly that he wants uh, the PLA to be able to accomplish certain tasks by certain periods, 2027 is one, 2035, 2049, uh, all of which are important dates to the Chinese mind. Um, but simply working toward a capability doesn't mean that that's the end date that you're absolutely going to use it. Uh, I will say everything has a huge caveat to you know what we would call maybe a black swan event. Um, there's an election in Taiwan next year. If the people on Taiwan decide to elect someone who decides to declare independence, uh, Xi Jinping, I think, will be very Donald Rumsfeldian in the he will go to war with the army he has, and not necessarily the army he wants. Uh, but if the Chinese are allowed to stick to their timeline uh, and they're the ones pursuing, uh, you know, this this unification with Taiwan because Taiwan has never been part of the PRC. It hasn't been part of China since the 1800s, like I said, when it got ceded to Japan. Uh, but if they are on their timeline, they are going to wait until they are ready and have developed uh, all of the entire suite of capabilities. Military uh, is obviously a primary, but, but also economic and trade and diplomatic uh, to ensure that China can accomplish the the task and, do, and, and, and bear the cost that would be associated with it. So I don't. I don't think we're in a danger window at this very moment. Uh, but again, uh, they have increased so rapidly in capabilities that should one thing lead to another, or should some sort of black swan or ex external event force them or have them perceived to be forced into it, uh, yes, they would absolutely launch some sort of retaliation against Taiwan. Uh, and yes, that would be far, far more difficult and more challenging and uh, more costly to both sides uh, than it ever has been in the past. So from that, we absolutely are in, in a danger window, which is why we need to continue to try to figure out ways to have clear communications with them, not cut off communications. We don't have to agree, but we certainly should be uh, talking more and having some more discussions about what is or is not uh, likely to cause conflict. Is, is, is there... You know, it was it was interesting because a lot of people in Washington have been asking why the administration is so hell bent uh, to communicate with uh, the Chinese and how, how many senior officials have been going to Beijing. Um, do, do, do you think there was a catalyst for that? I mean, is there something that propelled that? Because, right, I mean, the Chinese answer has been like, I'm not really interested in talking to you. Uh, and, and we sort of kept pushing it. Um, so, I mean, basically, from your standpoint, it's much better to be communicating than not communicating. Yes, the, the communication, certainly. Now, whether or not we should continue to send high-level officials without any kind of reciprocity or any indication that the Chinese care, that's a whole different issue, right? So right. Uh, I think we should communicate across a whole spectrum, not necessarily sending them, 
sending officials to China without, uh, like I said, getting anything in return. It needs to be a two-way street, but we need to make sure we maintain uh, the ability to, uh, because, you know, crises do happen uh, and they are crises for a reason because you haven't planned them. Uh, you know, if another EP3 ends up on Hainan Island, uh, if some, you know, U.S. Navy ship goes bump in the night with the ship, uh, we need to have mechanisms in place to prevent it from spiraling out of those, uh, that ability to talk. Uh, however, uh, high level visits and dialogues and things um, uh, without getting anything in return, uh, you know, that's a, that's a broader policy debate uh, that should be had. Um, uh, I, I want to ask you um, about Taiwan um, and, and, and then I'm going to ask you how it is and what it is that we specifically need to be doing to send them the message that it's a very bad idea and that they don't want to start a war. Um, about Taiwan, right? So much is made that, right, there are only five landing beaches. It's a lot like Norway, Vago, right? It's, it's very difficult. You know, the, we know where the five beaches are. They know where they are. The Taiwanese know how to defend them. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, we sort of say that it, it's really, really, really hard. You're a former Marine. You know all about amphibious operations, right? You went through the basic school, uh, even though you were an aviator. Um, how hard is it to take Taiwan, right? Because there were a lot of questions about whether the Taiwanese are actually up to defending themselves. Um, that's the first question. And the second is, what if they don't take it and they just blockade it, right? I mean, the Chinese are very good at identifying means other than going through the front door, right? I can cut off your power and, and cut your water line, right? I'll let you stay in the house. There's You're not going to be able to stay in that house for long or in that apartment building. What are... What, where where do you stand on how easy or not is it to actually do an invasion, which some people say is, oh, my God, it's the hardest thing ever and, and they can't do it. Um, or, OK, well, what if they don't actually take it over, but they blockade it, you know, and, and they enforce a maritime and air, air you know, an air defense and a maritime identification and exclusion zone? What do we do then? Yeah. And that's the perfect question to be asking, because we do uh, like to focus a whole lot on a kinetic invasion. Uh, right, because of, that's the most dangerous scenario, but it's also kind of the easiest for, you know, um, uh, generally, you know, I want to say military minded people, but for people to wrap their head around, they understand that. Uh, so to answer the first part of the question, it is really hard. Uh, Taiwan is a small island. Like you said, absolutely, the beaches are known, uh, not <laughs> not least of which because the Taiwanese live there, right? Uh, and so the people on Taiwan, they know the beaches, they know the hydrography. Right. Um, and it is it would be greater than, uh, you know, the the, the landing on D-Day uh, in Normandy would be harder than that. Uh, the spine of Taiwan is mountainous. There are no good east west uh, transit lines. Um, so it is just a hard, hard place, which is one of the reasons that the PLA has never tried to do it uh, up until now, right. just because it is so difficult. Uh, I think that the people of Taiwan probably have taken uh, some lessons from the people of the Ukraine. But I think even short of that. Uh, a lot of the people on Taiwan absolutely would stand and defend the island uh, against any kind of incursion, um, uh, especially from the mainland, but really anyone trying to do them harm. Uh, and they would stand up at the at the end of the day and fight uh, tooth and nail. And again, it would be a long, hard fight simply because of the geography and the hydro hydrography uh, of the island. Uh, but the second point you bring up is really kind of the more complex situation that we don't spend enough time because... Not enough things go boom, and when things don't go boom, it's hard to go buy new aircraft and new missiles and you know new submarines. Um, but that really is going to be the more complex challenge. Uh, so one, they probably wouldn't call it a blockade because that would be uh, you know a, a an act of war and has ramifications in international relations. And they would say it's a quarantine measure because it's purely a domestic matter. Uh, you know, the PRC line is that Taiwan is part of China, uh, right. and this is an internal matter, and everyone else should, should stay out. It is really difficult to see how how uh, the United States and our allies would respond to that, depending on how quickly they enforced it, how well they enforced it, and how hard uh, they ratcheted it up. Um, because uh, if they really wanted to do it, uh, there's no good way to resupply Taiwan except for by sea. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is they are an island. They don't produce uh, the vast majority of the things you need to have a modern industrial society, uh, namely uh, gas and oil, 
even water and food, much less all the things that keep their economy humming. Uh, so they are very easy to cut off if the Chinese enforced what we'll call a blockade. Um, and there is no option to doing some sort of Berlin airlift uh, simply because the the geography and the vast distances involved, much less if the Chinese PLA, you know, Air Force tried to enforce that blockade. So that really is a huge challenge uh, that Lonnie Henley continues to, uh, to point out uh, is stuff that we need to spend a lot more brain power working on. How would we do that? And then, you know, if things go kinetic, well, the first question is who fires the first shot? Is the U.S. willing to fire a shot to get in? Just resupply them? Is the PLA willing to fire a shot at the Americans to stop them? Uh, and that's where it can kind of spiral out of control. And that's why uh, that's a fantastic question and things I think we need to think far more deeply about. Well, the administration has been trying to buy time as it accelerates almost everything, right? All the allied partnership outreach, uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, Tony Blinken, uh, you know, Kurt is obviously one of the architects of it, but it's clearly so is Tony Blinken, so is um, Jake Sullivan, and so indeed is the president himself. So there's been an enormous amount of outreach to bring allies and partners together. It was a watershed moment to bring the Japanese and the South Koreans uh, to uh, Camp David, um, right? And uh, the, the Korean uh, president is taking heat for that, uh, ultimately. Um, at the same time, you know, the day after Russia went into Ukraine, it was the White House that came out and said, hey, we've got to stand up for Ukraine, otherwise China will miscalculate uh, on uh, Taiwan. Uh, right. And the president, by the way, I think what five times now has said the United States is going to fight to defend Taiwan, which uh, to to some has injected, um, it has served a deterrent function. What's your sense on all of these metrics and how much of this is actually deterring or changing Chinese calculations at all? Yeah, I think the fact that uh, the outreach continues to our allies and partners is absolutely critical. Uh, and this is something that I'm glad um, we seem to be doing a lot more of because it really is uh, it is the crux of this whole thing. We just can't do it without our allies and partners. And I mean that uh, from a, a diplomatic economic um, uh, stance, but also um, uh, from just a military point of view. Right. It's just it is too hard and too difficult uh, to do it without them. So. The other point of fact is that, you know, uh, it is going to affect them whether they want to or not. Uh, and so it is important to make sure that we are all um, uh, on the same on the same sheet of music when it comes to to that threat. Um, so I think it's uh, vitally important. And I think that um, it is uh, it's been a huge uh, a huge effort uh, on the part of the administration to make that turn around. Like you said, the Japanese and Koreans uh, have historically have some tensions there uh, trying to work through those. Uh, they've been great in bringing uh, the NATO alliance uh, to uh, to pay attention to the Pacific. Uh, first couple, the first time that NATO has ever had a uh, had the Pacific on their agenda uh, happened here just recently last year, uh, and so I think that is absolutely critical, and we need to continue to do more of it. The other thing is that it continues to um, uh, weave a web around uh, China of global international order. Uh, so things like AUKUS and the Quad. Uh, and it shows China that we welcome China to participate in the modern world. Uh, we want a safe and secure and stable China, but we want them also to play by the rules uh, and respect respect uh, international norms. Uh, and that if they do that, they can reap all the benefits. Uh, but if they don't, they do so at their own peril. And by bringing in those allies and partners, we make that peril and the cost uh, that much greater. And that's not just the military cost, but economics and diplomatics. Uh, and those are the things I think China really, really cares about. Uh, and the Chinese people are going to care more about uh, at the end of the day is maintaining uh, and improving lifestyle for their children, because that's exactly what they want, just like everyone else on the world. Uh, and when they, they would prefer that uh, and eventually, you know, kick the can down the road and maybe we get to this Taiwan thing, maybe we don't. But that's that's really, uh, in my mind, the 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 best way um, and the most secure way for us to pursue this goal is to, one, avoid fighting China militarily um, right. because the cost will be horrendous on all our side, their side, and most importantly for the people on Taiwan. Uh, but our allies and partners have a big stake in it as well. So Ukraine has bought us time? And, and, and so, has Russia been punished enough, right? Because, I mean, there's a sense that the Russians haven't been punished enough. And indeed, the two of them are sort of in cahoots. So um, they're still, you know, I mean, Russia's able to still 
get money for oil by selling it even at a discount rate to the Chinese. But I mean, has Ukraine bought its time? And from Beijing's perspective, has Russia been punished enough to go, wow, I, I don't want to have that happen to me? Yeah, so the flip side for the Chinese side is exactly that. Uh, I think they've seen uh, uh, they had miscalculated uh, that they would be able to pry the United States away from the EU, that they'd be able to pry the states of Europe uh, away from each other, and they would be able to kind of uh, you know go after the goals in this piecemeal fashion. And they've seen uh, the the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine to be just the opposite, that NATO came together, right. the EU came together, that they held the sanctions through a cold winter, through a long time, uh, even um, uh, you know at some peril to their own economies, uh, and that we've continued to stick with it and actually uh, ratchet it up. So I think from the Chinese perspective, this is there's very few lessons that China is learning from Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis their, their position on Taiwan. That absolutely, I think, is one of them. Uh, and I think China is working very hard on all of these fronts to construct construct a parallel system. Uh, I call it a, their their insurance policy to the United States. They don't want to get out of the WTO. They don't want to get out of the IMF and the World Bank and these international systems. But they want to have uh, a parallel system in case we try to kick them out of SWIFT, in case uh, we put WTO sanctions on them. Uh, and that's why they have a huge outreach effort into the Middle East. We've seen what they've been doing with right. Saudi Arabia. This is why they have an and, outreach and effort. And the UAE to, as well. And right. the UAE. And throughout Africa, right, to continue to get the access to resources that they absolutely need to move up the value chain and to keep those 1.4 billion people satisfied and having their lives improved. All of that is critically important. They absolutely have overlapping strategic interests with the Russians. Uh, they are happy to buy Russian gas and Russian oil uh, at a deeply discounted price because it helps China and it's good for them. Uh, and as they, they build this relationship with Russia and Iran, uh, states in the Middle East, and potentially uh, even in you know South America and throughout Africa, uh, if they get enough people to sign on to uh, whatever this parallel system is, and keep in mind, uh, since the end of World War II, there really hasn't been the capability to settle these debts in anything but the international system and in dollars. Uh, if you could construct a parallel system that allows you to do it outside of that, that weakens the sanction ability, that weakens our diplomatic uh, ability to impose some of these costs because of the uh, the position of the dollar and the and the and the ability of the international system as it as it sits now, the finance system uh, as it right. sits now to impose those costs. Uh, and so this is absolutely something that China is furiously working toward. Uh, and again, it goes back to that web. The the more web we weave, the better it is. Uh, and the more they will try to find ways to, uh, you know, make holes in that web uh, and find ways out of it. What What is, Brendan, right? I mean, the, the Chinese do, um, you know, even if they'll screw things up occasionally, I mean, they are executing a very long-term plan of national rejuvenation, uh, economic, uh, technological, uh, and military superiority. Uh, so it's not just something that began in 1996 with carriers that went through, you know, the Taiwan Strait. It was a sort of methodical, you know, you know, hide and bide, uh, right, or bide and hide uh, until we're sort of ready to take our rightful place as the world's leading power. Um, you know, we are depleting arsenals. We're demonstrating political disunity. You know, our supply chains are taxed. We, we're not even able to produce the weapons we need and the quantities we need them. Um, uh, you know, what what are the things that we need to be doing? Right. Um, I'm, I've said this before. I'm a great admirer of the Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall uh, and CQ Brown for their drive to change things and change it fast and field capability quickly. Uh, because that's key, right? The Chinese know how to count. And if they conclude these guys don't have enough LRASMs or defensive weapons or even platforms, sort of the jig is up and, and they may miscalculate. What are the things we need to do and what's the sort of long-term approach we need to continue deterring them, an authoritarian nation, from miscalculating that will be expensive for all, right? However expensive deterrence is, it's a hell of a lot cheaper uh, than uh, fighting a war. What, what's your sense on all the things that policymakers need to be doing in order for us to keep buying time and delaying the Chinese from making potentially a catastrophic mistake? Yeah. Uh, uh, so there has to be carrots and sticks in my mind. Uh, you know, so it can't be all stick. There has to be some sort of carrot. 
the sticks that we need, like you said, are simply uh, to to have the industrial base uh, that is going to be able to support this. And we've got to have enough munitions in the region uh, that present a credible threat to say, look, China, we do not want to go to war. We want to prevent this. We want to find some sort of peaceable solution, uh, be it short term, long term or you know, indefinite. Uh, but we don't want to go to war over this. But if you push us, we will, and we have the capability to fight and win that war. Um, and so uh, you need to have the partners and allies throughout the region. Uh, again, going back to that web, right? Um, uh, 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 Japan is uh, absolutely critical, as are uh, the people in Taiwan, Singapore, Australia, uh, our other partners in the region uh, are all critical to this uh, to this endeavor to clearly signal to China that it is not. Uh, in their interests that one, they would not be successful and two, the cost they would bear, they would bear uh, would be just simply too great. Uh, but that does hinge on having the military capability to be able to do that. And so that's exactly what we need. Um, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to be out at the unveiling of the newest bomber. Uh, it is a sleek looking piece of gear. And I think that uh, it is uh, incredible the way we were able to develop it in a relatively short period of time, uh, given the uh, the length of development uh, of some of the other weapon systems. That's uh, that's a great advantage. Uh, we are currently, you know, modernizing uh, the nuclear forces. We are looking at uh, uh, the AUKUS deal obviously started with submarines and is going to get expanded uh, to continue to uh, to transfer and work with the uh, the Australians and the Brits um, on all manner of uh, technologies and military capabilities, uh, and that's the other thing is just it doesn't have to be all the United States. Uh, as long as all the arrows are uh, mixing matching, uh, it doesn't matter because they're all part of the quiver. So if it's a Japanese F thirty five, if it's a British F thirty five, it's an Australian F thirty five, or if it's all the uh, the the the, the munitions that go with any of those aircraft. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Uh, and I think we are starting to make that turn here in the United States to really think, uh, you know, the tagline is integrated by design. Uh, I really hope we stick with that because that is, that's the way to do it because we can't bear uh, all the costs um, uh, and nor, nor should we, but, uh, but I think that's exactly, but the, like I said, the flip side is uh, there need to be carrots as well. And we need to tell China that, you know, look, uh, there are disputes if you work through international mechanisms to resolve some of these disputes and to come up peaceably uh, to 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 figure out some of these questions. Yes, we absolutely are looking to have a peaceful resolution of these questions, uh, but it has to be, uh, you know, free and fair and open and according to the rules. It cannot be through uh, intimidation, uh, through, you know, quarantines and blockades or through uh, the use of military force. And I think it needs to be both sides of those. So. Uh, it's a tough road to hoe, not to mention the fact that all of these countries, the U.S. included, have other issues. We all have domestic right. issues. We all have economic issues. Uh, and so it really is uh, it's a hard game for the policymakers to do to figure out what that right mix is. I think recently in the United States, we've had a lot of discussion about the industrial base. That's fantastic. Uh, like I said, I think the, the development of the AUKUS framework is going to be terrific um, uh, to bring more of that to bear. And I hope it just uh, it portends more international cooperation and not less. Um, I, I want to uh, ask you about um, and this is sort of lightning round. We're in the last uh, five minutes. But, um, you know, there's this sense that we got China wrong. Uh, right. I mean, that's become uh, a narrative. But actually, if you look at there was a period where Russia, excuse me, where China was opening up more, the wealthier it was getting. Um, there were a lot of uh, folks running the government that were technocrats. Uh, it was a very collaborative government. Right. I mean, the government actually was designed to prevent another Mao. Uh, right. Uh, there were oversight mechanisms. Uh, there were firm uh, rules. Uh, Hu Jintao was subordinating the military to the party because he was like, look, you guys are getting a little bit out of control. And so there were a lot of Kennedy School graduates in Stanford and Princeton, you know, Western educated people who uh, were trying, you know, and, and, and the West was saying, hey, you know, the more China rises, the more for ego and other reasons, it will want to be the stakeholder of the responsible power. And in some respects, the Chinese did start behaving themselves a little bit better. How much of this is us getting it wrong? Because I don't think ultimately you steer the outcome of a great power to do whatever it is it wants to do, unfortunately. I mean, especially a power that big. Um, right. I mean, we haven't been able to bring Iran and North Korea to heal. Right. How much of this was us fouling it up and not applying enough carrot and sticks or maybe enough sticks? 
And how much of this was a singular individual in the form of Xi Jinping who was like, I'm going to consolidate power and I'm going to be the next Mao? Yeah, and in my mind, it's both, right? So certainly there were things uh, we could have done better at the time. We probably knew we could have done better. Um, but, but I am not of the mind that, you know, somebody got China wrong and the entire policy of, you know, engagement was was misguided. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know that there is a great man of history. I don't know that I subscribe to that theory, uh, but certainly do they do have an influence. And to your point, Xi Jinping is a very different kind of leader with a very different mindset and goal in mind than either Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao. Um, and so when I, you know, when I studied at Fudan in Shanghai, uh, it was under Hu Jintao and there was a different sense among the Chinese people, among uh, academics, as well as among the military, uh, as to the direction the country was going. Xi Jinping saw that, thought that that was not going to lead China in the direction that uh, that he thought it needed to go. And he made a very abrupt change. Um, and so some of these things, yes, they were going to be long-term trends in China, regardless of who was in power. And we probably should have been paying far more attention in the days, uh, you know, the uh, leading up to the WTOS session and certainly in the early days of that, right. to how much they were stealing and uh, and U.S. companies were were blindly going in on this this fairy tale that they would get free and open access to the Chinese market, which was never going to happen, no matter who was in power. Uh, but I also think that China did change. Uh, and it was by Xi Jinping, who's a very strong leader, who understood his country and his party uh, and has been able to bend them to his will. Um, you know, he doesn't see it as being evil. He sees it uh, as being a patriot and leading uh, what he says, you know, the, the the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Uh, and this is the way he's going about it. It's just a very different form um, than, uh, than Hu Jintao. So uh, certainly there were things that, you know, we could have done better that we knew we should have been doing better. Uh, and really knew even at the time they were probably foolish, but uh, you know we really live in a free, open, democratic, and capitalist society, and uh, and they, you know, some of those uh, uh, I don't want to call them flaws, but some of those are built into the system that don't necessarily uh, take in the long-term consequences of all your actions sufficiently. Uh, but I do think that there actually was a, a pretty significant change uh, with the rise of the Xi administration. Um, that probably that could not necessarily have been foreseen. Uh, I think engagement for the vast majority of the policies was probably the right way to go about it. Um, and uh, and we probably just took too long to realize the shift that occurred in Chinese politics. Uh, the flip right. side of that is uh, I, I want to make sure, like I've said a couple of times, right? We we need some sort of policy engagement, even in the the, the height of the Cold War. Against the Soviets, we still had the ability to talk to them. We still had dialogues. Uh, you know, when I was actually in Shanghai, uh, General Habinger had came, came to Shanghai, uh, and we took him out and uh, and he told me a story uh, when he was head of Stratcom that he had gone to Moscow uh, and sat in his counterpart's chair, and the guy had made the joke about just don't push the big red button. Uh, and a year later, he invited the head of the, the Russian Strategic Command uh, to Colorado to Cheyenne Mountain, uh, and he sat in you know at the head of uh, um, uh, the, the nuclear chair, and he made the same joke about don't push the big red button. Uh, so even in the heights of the Cold War, we still were able to have these kind of, uh, uh, you know, relationships and, and dialogues with the, the Soviets and the Russians. So um, we certainly need to get back to a place where we're having frank and open and we don't have to agree, but we do need to find ways to avoid uh, misperceptions. Uh, because if you're not communicating, you're going to think the worst in somebody because our two cultures and the, the cultures of the military are so different. It's very easy to miss uh, and it's very easy to think the other side is escalating when the other side thinks they are trying to be restrained. Uh, but uh, and that spirals out of control far more quickly than I think either side cares to admit, especially in public. Uh, and so we need contact and dialogue and discussion to to work through some of these thorny problems with the fact that we may never come to a solution, but at least we can avoid conflict. Um, that's uh, that's right out of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, right? Talking to strangers like you, 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 you could be on complete, you know, you are completely both both of the people in this exchange are totally getting it wrong. Uh, so I commend uh, that was a terrific book. Let me ask you two uh, last uh, questions. Question um, after 50 years, Brendan, of educating the best and brightest of China in uh, Western universities and putting to work in Western companies and in uh, labs uh, and developing technology, then going to 
China and leading, you know, the uh, you know Western subsidiaries of those companies, you know, whether they're Boeing assembly facilities, Airbus, uh, you know, automotive ones, and and the like. How you know we, we're finding that the Chinese, despite our sanctions, are producing seven nanometer chips. Um, ultimately, is it too late to close the technological barn door? Because we have this sense that. You know, we in America in particular are particularly gifted and the water is particularly fresh here. And so we can build airliners and, you know, nuclear reactors and four nanometer chips. And actually, the, the, the Chinese are smart. They have a lot of investment dollars and they've been properly educated for half a century in this stuff. I mean, how realistic is it that any sanction that we put on the Chinese at this point is going to have any impact whatsoever on their ability to field military capabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the The fact of the matter is that uh, we have been very open, like I said, because of our nature of our society. Uh, and we haven't done the best job of convincing those people to stay here in the United States uh, to, you know, uh, become Americans and help America get stronger and then, you know, explain to China why that's the better way to go toward the future. Um, I, so the, the the horse in the barn analogy fails because it's not just one horse. Yes, there are right. plenty of horses that have fled the barn, aerospace engines being one of them, uh, cyber technology being, uh, you know, another, right. and there's a whole host, uh, but there's still plenty of horses in the barn. And, uh, you know, I don't want to draw out that analogy, but there's going to be more in the future <laughs> that we don't even know that are there yet. So we really need to, and Cassie, has uh, published a series of papers uh, try to uh, toward this end, and we're going to be doing more in the future, explaining the nature of the Chinese state, explaining the party, um, uh, party and the party's army, the PLA, and the relationship to the the PRC, the government of China, as well as academics and research institutions, um, and just so people can make an informed decision that when somebody shows up at your lab, be it in London or in uh, Washington uh, or in Paris or in you know Germany or anywhere else, uh, and they say, hey, we have a bunch of money. We want to partner with you on topic X, Y, or Z because we think you're doing a great job. Uh, here's some money for the joint project. Here's some money for the lab. Here's some money for you. Uh, are you interested? We need to make sure that uh, those those labs, those research academies, uh, the in, both the individuals and the institutions have the ability to, to look uh, and see where that money is coming from and where it's going to. In some fields, yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of ways that we could still cooperate with China, right? Public health, right. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, however, the the series of reports that we already did was on hypersonics. Uh, hypersonics, it's, it's pretty much a one-trick pony. Uh, it is government and military customers at this point. So if you're cooperating on hypersonics, hypersonic materials, et cetera, uh, you should have a pretty good idea it's going to the national security apparatus of China. Uh, and that's really what we need to make sure that we're communicating to people uh, as we go forward. Uh, again, I, I am not for cutting off China uh, across the board doing research and cooperation. There's plenty of good to be had on both sides and for all of mankind. Uh, but certainly we need to be doing it far more smartly uh, and, and well-informed to understand there are uh, it is a different system in China. Uh, and people in the West don't understand that system. We try to explain it to them and say, just because, you know, it has a civilian research institute, you need to understand that this is also partnered with a military institute that is feeding directly back in. Uh, the example I usually use is in quantum uh, communications. Uh, you know, everyone knows that China put up a quantum communication satellite a couple of years ago, um, demonstrated it could work. Uh, and it was the first in the nation or the first in the world. Uh, to be able to to do this and so far the only one to be able to do it, do it from space. Uh, and so I tell this whole story and then usually when I give the, the lecture, I ask if anybody in the room knows who they partnered with. And inevitably, it doesn't matter if I say this uh, in Germany, in England or anywhere in the United States, almost no one uh, ever un knows who they partnered with. And the answer is the, Austri uh, the Austrian Academy of Sciences because it was science and they doing, they, the scientists were doing science for science sake as far as they were concerned. They didn't understand that, yes, this this may be science and cutting edge, but it has direct implications and advantages to the Chinese uh, military and the national security uh, system in China. And so we just need to get smarter when we do these partnerships. And that goes for both for us and our allies and partners. Um, let me ask one uh, last uh, question uh, for 
decades, U.S. strategy, right? I mean, and even the opening to China was about the Soviet Union encountering the Soviet Union, and we were going to build uh, China up, and 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 China was useful to us, whether getting arms to Afghanistan and you know being ready and available and open market uh, for our goods. So you know we were hoping for a typically Anglo-Saxon win-win. Uh, relationship at the end of the day. And the late, great Peter Rodman, uh, Henry Kissinger's protege, used to always tell me, right, it's integral, imperative for us to keep these two separated. It increasingly looks like they're not really separated and that there is remarkable common cause among four pariah nations, China, Russia, uh, North Korea, and Iran. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jim Stavridis and uh, Noah Ackerman in their book, uh, you know, 2034 sort of was like, hey, if there's a war, actually, it those, it may be, you know, between the United States and its allies and partners and these four guys uh, as, a, as an axis. Uh, you know, Tom Mankin has been one of the people who's argued that it's time for a much more integrated strategy as opposed to having a China strategy and a Russia strategy. From your standpoint, how it is, how what's the kind of strategy we need, given that the more pressure we put on all these countries, they're all going to coalesce together and find interest in it? especially if the Chinese feel increasingly like, which the Chinese already have done, right? I mean, the, the, the Chinese use the North Koreans as a convenient foil uh, to, you know, keep the, you know, South Koreans distracted and everybody distracted. Anyway, what's your, what's your sense? Do we need a more integrated strategy that looks at all of them as opposed to just all individually? Uh, so I think we need both, right? We need a China-centric strategy, but we also need to see how that affects everything else, especially, like you said, via the, the Russians and the uh, the Iranians. Um, as you mentioned, the whole reason we have diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China is because they were afraid that Moscow had a plan to nuke Beijing and they wanted our help. Uh, and we found at the end of the Cold War, when the Iron Curtain fell and the archives got open, it's because Moscow had a plan to nuke Beijing. Uh, and so it wasn't that long ago uh, that, you know, that the Chinese and the Russians were at each other's throats. The Russians just uh, launched a, a formal complaint about the latest Chinese map over the island that they almost went to war over. Um, and so they are not. Relationship is, uh, is a, they have overlapping geostrategic interests, but it is not, not deep seated. It is not uh, in any way, shape or form the United States, and the United Kingdom, the United States and Australia. We have long, deep uh, relationships with these countries uh, that are based on uh, uh, not only just a shared heritage, but a shared outlook uh, for the vision of the world in the future and our values. This is not what is happening between China and Russia, but they absolutely have overlapping strategic interests and they are both realists uh, and will use that to their advantage the best they can uh, if they need to rely on one another, if they have the advantage uh, to to do that, uh, even if it comes down to war fighting, I think they absolutely will. So we need to be very mindful as we go forward that this is a uh, is a possibility, and that the 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 technology transfers we see, the arms weapons uh, transfers that we see, uh, and in fact now that are starting to go the other way from China back to Russia, uh, you know, not least because of the invasion of Ukraine, but even before that, uh, as well as some of the cooperation in space and other realms absolutely is going to be a factor uh, for the foreseeable future. And we need to make sure we understand the totality of that as we go forward. Um, that being said, we have way better allies and partners. Uh, we have a distinct advantages, especially over the Russians, um, but even still over the Chinese economically, diplomatically, um, and in terms of innovation, it isn't a God-given right. It isn't uh, absolutely uh, guaranteed that that will continue for the future. Uh, but we need to, uh, to need to make sure that we understand uh, how, if China, you know, feels they are pressured to it, how they, the Chinese, are going to solve Chinese problems, uh, and not think of it strictly in a DC Beijing scenario, but also think how all the other countries around the uh, the region and indeed around the world are going to come to play. Which goes back to the hey, our allies and partners are critical to this. They're critical to the future of the United States, and I'm really glad that we continue to to put more emphasis on them. 
Brendan, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolutely terrific conversation. Appreciate it very much. I should commend uh, that you've joined uh, our uh, colleague, uh, Laura Winter, uh, on the downlink where you've discussed some of China's uh, um, uh, space capabilities. So I suggest to the audience that they check that conversation out. And I would lo I look forward to welcoming you on the Air Power podcast so that we can have a much more focused air power discussion uh, about the balances between manned, unmanned, and the investment that the Chinese are making. But wanted to start this off with a broad strategic conversation conversation with you. Thanks so very much for joining us and keep up the terrific work. I mean, I, I just want to tell the audience, uh, this is an organization that does some of the most unique work uh, in the nation on looking at, at some of the specific capabilities. And honestly, your work, Brendan, is absolutely, and from your team, is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad we're able to help. That's our whole that's the great part about this job is everything we do is open source, uh, publicly available information. So it's free and available to uh, anyone and everyone that wants it. It's up on the website in a PDF or even uh, on YouTube. But uh, uh, the flip side is that I really appreciate you continuing to, to have these deep conversations to explain to the public all these these heady topics. Uh, and I'm really honored to be uh, to be able to take part of this. So I do look forward to the next conversation. Uh, looking forward to it as well, Brendan. Thanks so very much.